Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Dr. Cubit, how are you doing today? I am excited to be back, Katie. We have a special guest on with us today. Brianna Rando is the Quality Assurance Manager for Stanley Premium Western Forage. And uh, hi, Brianna. How are you? Hi, Katie. I'm good. How are you? Good. We're so excited to have you on today. Uh, This is something that we've never really had an opportunity to do before to speak to someone on our quality team and give our listeners a little bit more insight and background into the workings of Stanley and how everything comes to fruition in our company. And so we're really glad to get to know you a little bit more on this episode today, and then also learn a little bit more about quality assurance when it comes to producing quality Western hay. So we're glad to have you on today. Um, First off, I want to have you tell us a little bit more about growing up for you. You're in Idaho now, obviously. Did you grow up in Idaho or where where are you from? Give us some more insight in your background. So I grew up on the coast in Northern California, right under the Oregon border. Uh, Very little exposure uh, to agriculture outside of kind of our local lumber industry, forestry, um, and a little bit of the, the fishing and, you know, all the stuff they're doing on the ocean. Okay. Um, so no idea about forages or any of that really small community, kind of similar to where I'm at now in Idaho. Um, but of course on the coast versus in the desert. Right. So you've traveled a little bit of a ways to get over here from there. How long did you live there and how did you end up actually getting into Idaho? So I lived there um, growing up until I moved to college. Uh, So when I was 18, I moved from there to Oregon for my college years. And then when I finished um, college, I moved to Idaho uh, for this job. Nice. Then how did you get involved in horses? One thing that our listeners and some of our um, customers probably don't know is our quality person is a horse person, which is really a pretty neat thing. So where did you get your start? I mean, how young were you? So I started uh, with 4-H and um, got my first horse when I was 11. Um, And I have had her ever since a couple days. Well, I will have had her for 20 years. 20 years. Nice. What is your horse's name? Her name is Hershey. Hershey. Cute. Uh, so that's how I started. My my parents had some friends that had horses, kind of encouraged me uh, to, to get involved. My dad thought it would be a great way to keep me away from boys. <laughs> um, and he will tell everyone that still to this day that that's why he bought me my first horse. Smart, smart dad there, huh? <laughs> they always think you're going to grow out of it, too. And most of us just don't ever grow out of it. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think he really thought that one through as, you know, now, you know, 20 years later, he's still taking care of that same horse. I would imagine that was (laughs) probably your hot horse then. Yes, it was. Um, So I showed um, in 4-H until I graduated from high school. And I had, when I moved to college, we had four horses. So they didn't end up with just 
getting me one, we had four total. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So once you once you get one, then they just all start multiplying. Well, then my mom needed one, and mm-hmm. then you know my dad needed one, and and then... we've got enough room, and we've got an extra stall, and so <laughs> yeah, get another one, and what's another feeding a day? And that's a slippery slope. <laughs> did you guys do like trail riding or did you ride with your parents then? Yes. My mom showed a little with me um, when we would do like open shows locally. Um, but for the most part, we did a lot of trail riding. And of course, growing up on the coast in the Redwoods, um, we had access to some of the most beautiful places to ride. Oh, um, I, yeah. I grew up riding on the beach, which I know a lot of people don't get to do, but it is an amazing experience. Um, and one of the things I miss most about being um, on the coast. I bet that would be such a fun experience to be able to ride. Uh, Dr. Hubert, have you done that? Have you ridden horses on the beach? I have not ridden in the Redwoods, but I have traveled a lot on the West Coast. I've driven from, you know, all the way down the bottom, all in Southern California, all the way up the coast, all the way up into Oregon. And it is one of the most beautiful drives, I think, in the world. Um, And, you know, it, it was fantastic. But riding a horse through there would have been even more amazing. So I have a quick question because it's always interesting for me as the nutritionist to kind of get a handle on our general horse owners. And what did you guys, when you were growing up, you and your parents, did you have your horses at your place? Did you have a barn or did you board them? We had to board. Um, so when I, when we got my first one, uh, she was already at a boarding facility. They sold it, um, fairly quickly after I had bought her. And then we moved her to the local fairgrounds, which was close to our house, but they were in stalls and we took care of them the whole entire time. They were just at a different location. Okay. And so did you have much input in what the horses ate? Yep. We controlled all of that. Ah, great. That's a, that's a nice boarding situation. So you would have learned a lot about your horses that way. Some people don't have that. Ah, Some say it's a luxury to be able to feed their own horses and others enjoy having other people be able to do it for them. So that's just interesting to, to hear your kind of experience with the nutritional side of your horses. And at that point, I knew nothing. And of course, it seems like absolutely nothing now with all of my knowledge. But I'm sure we just went into the local feed store and bought whatever hay they had and, you know, whatever they recommended. And And where did most of your kind of early learnings about horse feeding come from? Was it 4-H? Was it your local feed store? Did your vet help you? It wasn't. It really wasn't until college that I knew anything. Interesting. Interesting. So, and mine never got, I mean, they weren't doing any, you know, crazy amount of work or anything. So hay was good enough to keep them um, where they needed to be weight wise. Yep. So we never added any complete feeds or anything like that. Sorry, Katie, I've, I, we've gone off topic. I, I <laughs> Go on with your questions. No, I love it. That's exactly what we need to do. I'm curious to know, so you grew up on the coast and you guys ended up getting one horse and then more horses. Did you own or have experience with any other animals like in 4-H? Did you do anything besides horses, show other animals or anything? I didn't. Um, I started with rabbits and went from a rabbit to a horse. Okay. Look at that Interesting jump. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. And do you have any animals with you now? Just my horses. The the real important ones, huh? Wink, wink. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the trick question is, tell me that the majority of their diet comes from Stanley Premium Western Forage. 
Um, a hundred percent of it does except their pasture, <laughs> except for the pasture. Nice. So you said you went to college in Oregon, right? Yes. What college did you go to and what did you study? So I started at a uh, small community college and got my associates in equine science. And then I moved to Oregon State University and got my bachelor's in animal science with a equine science focus and continued there to get my master's degree in crop science with a forage focus. When you um, graduated with your bachelor's and then moved on to getting your master's, was that all kind of a part of the process? Was it kind of going in hand in hand where you were going to obviously get that knowledge and experience with horses and then also on the forage side of it? Or did that just kind of come up and what made you decide that that was what you wanted to study? It just kind of happened. Um, I had an opportunity to pursue my master's degree there. I honestly didn't even think about the fact that I was jumping from animals to crops, mm-hmm. you know, into a graduate degree that had to deal with a completely different science until I was graduated. And I was like, wow, I knew nothing about plants when I started this. Um, it just all kind of happened. There was no plan there um, when I had finished my bachelor's degree. Huh. Okay. It's really full circle, though, because I wish that more animal scientists learned more about crops because crops is obviously what animals eat. So, I mean, we learn all about the systems. We learn all about uh, kind of the microbial populations in our animals, be it livestock or horses. And we know that crops are what feed them. But being able to fully understand the growth patterns of certain forages and plant species and what they need, when they need it, um, that enables us to make premium quality forages, which is the basis to most of our animals' diet. Right. Yeah. So you inadvertently, you did the perfect thing. Right. Coming from a nutritionist. Yeah. I know your horses are much better off for that, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately for them, because I, you know, try all the new things and. There's nothing wrong with that. So who has been your support team, you know, with having horses and owning horses and obviously your moves, your transitions in life, and then also within your career? My parents have been that constant support for me. So of course, starting in 4-H, you know, they were the financial support for all of my horses, um, the constant taking care of them, taking me to the barn, shows, all of that. Um, When I moved to college, of course, I didn't take all four of them with me. Um, So they have taken care of them for years while I was doing school. And then uh, they also moved to Idaho. um, And they now have my horses um, at their house since they have acres. And um, when they moved, my dad built them a barn. And so they have really supported that that passion and my, my love for horses. And that's even gone into, you know, my career, just supporting me on the days I work long hours and making sure that all my horses are still taken care of, even when I can't get there every day. That's so nice to have. Yes, it is. So did they, when you got your job with Stanley and you ended up moving out here, they decided to move out here because of the job you got or did, was there other connections? So they were actually here first. Oh, they had moved to Idaho while I was still in college. Okay. And so I technically followed them this way, but it worked out (laughs) so well, like it did the position that the opportunity that became available to you especially with your degree experience, your education, you probably couldn't have planned that if you wanted to. I definitely could not have. And I tell people all the time that I am extremely fortunate to have a job that fits my education and my passions. 
so well. Because a lot of the time you go to college and you get your degree and you just kind of get into a job and it doesn't match at all. And you just are working a job because you need the money. Right. But fortunately for me, that's not the case. I am in a job that perfectly fits my education and passion. Yeah. So it makes sometimes those those long hours not seem so bad because at least you're getting to do what you like. Definitely. <laughs> makes it worth it. That's a, that's a pretty neat story. So... If you could go back in time to visit your younger self, so this could be maybe like when you were either just starting college or just graduating, what advice would you give yourself after the experience that you've had so far in life? I would tell myself to take more risk. Are you not a risk taker? I am not. No, um, I'm more now than I used to be. Um, I'm pretty cautious and, you know, kind of like to play things safe. But the older I've gotten um, and more experiences I've had, I've learned that life's way more fun when you take those risks because you will learn things and experience things that you may not have otherwise. Did you so going back really quick, but it's still related to this question. So because I did a similar thing, I grew up in Oregon, actually, and went to school in Idaho, and I didn't know a single person. Did you know anybody where you went to college? Because that I could see that as being somewhat of a risky thing that people don't always feel comfortable doing. I didn't. Nope. I moved just because it was a, a school that was fitting what I wanted. And yeah, um, of course, made relationships along the way, but there was no one there when I moved. See, I and I, I, I'm probably similar in that way that you are. I've never really been a risk taker, but that at that point in my life, that was probably the riskiest thing I ever did because for me, it was probably I don't know, it was at least eight hours away. I can't remember the trip now, but and I didn't know a single soul, and and I was also a very shy person, and so taking more risks. That's good advice for your younger self. And one of the things that helped me um, in college, even because I was also, you know, shy, was I joined the intercollegiate horse show team at the college that I was at. And so horses helped me with that as well, just because I had a, a passion that I could share with similar people. Yeah. And so that helped me build relationships really quickly, um, just having that shared interest. And I completely agree with that. I will say that was one thing that I forced myself to do was to get involved into other clubs and organizations to meet people with a similar interest. So that's uh, for anybody listening that maybe is going to be going to college soon or kind of just making a transition in life like that. I think reaching out and finding either organizations or clubs like that that have your interests, it's such a good way, even if you are a little more timid and reserved. Um, it's a really good way to help you get out of your shell a little bit more and meet new people. So that's neat. So let's jump over to wearing your quality assurance hat at Stanley. Uh, share with us a little bit about what your daily responsibilities are. So kind of give us an example of a day in the life of someone in quality assurance at Stanley. Okay, so my day is going to be a little bit different. Um, depending on this season, but I'll just kind of give you an overview of kind of what my responsibilities are um, and then how we handle those on a daily basis. So I'm responsible uh, for our quality from the field. Um, so the time it's growing, put it in a bale all the way through uh, the process of it being delivered to a manufacturing facility, being manufactured, being put in a, a package and then shipped to our customers. I have uh, two technicians that work with me um, and they are here on a daily basis 
And the one that focuses on the finished goods, um, she's going to be going through the plant several times a day. She watches all the processes, ensures that all of the operators are following the procedures that they're supposed to for producing the product, making sure that the raw ingredient going into the products is correct and that the quality of the finished product is also correct. So between the two that I have, they kind of take turns and they'll cover the plant several times a day to ensure all of those processes are being followed. She also helps with a lot of our paperwork as far as, you know, keeping track of all of our, our production information. Um, if we do see an issue with a lot number, making sure that we address that and it doesn't get shipped out. Uh, she also helps with all of our training. Uh, so when we do operator training, um, whether it's quality for the process, we talk about food safety. Uh, she's assisting me with that as well. And then my other technician helps more on the raw hay side. Um, so during the summer, she's really busy with me keeping track of all of the samples that come in. So every time we buy or produce a stack of hay or collecting the sample and making sure that we have those logged and we retain them to make sure that we have kind of that traceability back to the field if we ever have issues with stacks. Nice. For me, um, I am kind of just managing all of that on a daily basis, scheduling training as needed based on processes and things that we're seeing. Come summertime, I am out in the field 90% of the time. Uh, so I try to run around and see all of the hay that we're putting up. Uh, that way I can make sure that it's getting into the correct process and into the correct market. So I do that from about the beginning of June until we're wrapping things up about the middle of October. So it keeps you, keeps you busy. It does. Yeah. And then middle of October, kind of slow down and start getting things wrapped up, making sure that all of the hay that we have is covered appropriately. Uh, we want to keep the, the quality really high. So we've got to make sure that we have it tarped in uh, whatever location it's at. And it's kind of wrapping up our, our end of the season tasks that we have every year. And I must say, you know, from a nutritional standpoint, when we're looking at forages, vitamin A and vitamin E uh, depleted in forages and green forages when you cut them pretty rapidly, except if you can get them out of the sunlight. And what we have found with some very minimal testing that Dr. Duran and I did on vitamin E levels of the alfalfa, especially because you guys do such a great job of covering the hay pretty quickly um, and not letting it be uh, attacked by, by the light, by the UV rays, um, that the vitamin E content is actually significantly higher than where we would expect it to be in most typical alfalfa. So what you're doing is really, really working. Yeah. And we, I mean, of course, one of our, our biggest reasons for getting things covered quickly is weather. Uh, we don't want the weather, either the sun or rain, uh, to damage those bales. But we also want it to maintain that really high color and that standard. And we know that getting it wrapped up in a quick manner helps make that that much nicer. And wouldn't you agree that you're at a bit of an advantage growing hay in that location because the weather's really on your side. It's more of a dry climate. You irrigate when you need to irrigate. There's pretty low humidity. Out here on the East Coast, I mean, blink and it could go from a beautiful sunny day to it's raining. And so a lot of farmers don't actually have the ability to put up hay really quickly and cover it because it seems to rain all the time. 
or it's really humid in the morning or humid during the day. And so um, they struggle with moisture levels. But Idaho is really one of the best places in the world to scientifically grow hay. I always tell folks when I'm recommending Stanley that this facility, they're not just baling grass and calling it hay. This is a this is a real scientific production that goes into the from the soil testing to the fertilization to the water management to the growing to you know what you're involved with uh, with the quality control of the actual products after they're harvested from the field so it's one of the more scientific operations for forage growing in the horse world anyway yeah definitely and brianna can you touch on what can happen if hay gets failed with too high a moisture and then it's stored away so uh, when that happens, you will see the hay turn from um, its good green color to more of a brown color. It has kind of a tobacco-y smell. Some people think it's more sweet. And that is just that moisture is affecting the quality of that hay. Mm-hmm. And so it just doesn't make it as high of quality. And of course, if you have too much moisture, um, then you're going to see the visible mold on those bales as well. Yeah. And then what can happen if hay that's too high of moisture is stacked and put together um, if it's not done the correct way? Isn't there combustion issues that could happen? Yeah, there's definitely a chance of spontaneous combustion um, if the, the moisture is too high in those bales. Uh, we do a really um, a really good job at ensuring that we don't ever have those issues. Uh, so that starts in the field, making sure that we're baling at the correct moisture. So we're constantly checking the hay once it's been cut to make sure that the moisture is out of the stems. We're making sure that we're not baling with too much dew on it or too much moisture. And then once it's in the bale, we're moisture testing every stack to make sure that it's below our acceptable level. We never want to get in an issue where we have too much moisture in a bale. I mean, those are large. Some of those bales are 1,800 pounds. And, you know, if you get moisture trapped in the middle of that, it doesn't really have anywhere to go. And that's where you'll see that spontaneous combustion is because it's just kind of burning up in the middle and then it just spreads to any bales that are surrounding it. I know that we do a really good job at making sure that those measures are taken care of so it doesn't happen. But in general, when people are looking for hay or even having hay, but maybe it's not stored properly and it does get wet, something like that could still happen with that. So just kind of making sure that, you know, we take all the precautions necessary to once we actually get good quality hay, we don't just leave it be or we partially tarp it or whatever our method is for protecting that hay, just making sure that we're really taking care of it to ensure that quality is there, but then also ensuring the safety, you know, especially if you happen to store any of your hay in a hay barn. I mean, we hear about that happen probably more than we would like to hear about how hay barns go up in flames. And that would be the reason. Yeah, definitely. And we have another step that we kind of take in preventing that higher moisture is prior to any of those bales going through the press, we're double checking that moisture on that raw hay first. So there's never really a risk of us pressing, you know, high moisture into those bales, which I think gives a little bit of confidence to knowing that, you know, once we have it compressed, because there was moisture in there, we're just going to push it closer together. We don't ever see those spontaneously combust because we've taken all of the steps prior to that to make sure that the moisture is correct. That is really good to know. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned talking about some of these bales getting to, they could be 1800 pounds. So how do we get from a bale in the field to a pellet or a cube in a bag? What does that process look like a little bit? So kind of um, just 
starting basic level. Um, of course, we're going to go in and, and cut whatever forage type we're dealing with at the moment. That gets cured and then put into a bale. Once it's in a bale, I'll go through and figure out what process it's going to go to. Um, and then at that point, I make the decision of whether or not it's going to get processed quickly or we're going to wrap it up and store it um, and use it later in the year. Uh, once we decide that we're going to use that specific stack, our trucking department will haul it from the field into our manufacturing facility. Um, once it's at the manufacturing facility, uh, we have a crew here that will unload all those trucks and then they're going to put it into staging for the process that it's been assigned to. So then kind of our plant crew, they will grab that raw hay, they'll put it on the process line. So if it's going to the pelleter, they're going to put it on that pelleter grinder table. Um, and then it's going to go through the process of the pelleter and then it gets into a bag. So one of the myths that Katie and I have had to kind of chat about in the past, but it'd be great to hear from you as well. And I think it comes from more of the feed industry. But when pellets first became available to people, there was a myth that pellets were just the floor sweeping. So anything that was left over on the floor went into the pellet. And we have had the same question asked to us that, okay, are the forages that go into your pellets and cubes the same quality as what is in your baled forage? And we always say absolutely yes. We're not using lesser quality forages in the pellets or cubes. But could you touch on that, that a little bit? Yeah. So you're exactly correct. Um, it is going to be the same quality going through a press, the cuber or the pelleter to make those finished products. There are just a few things that we know help those processes run a little bit better, which is how I'm designating that hay. Typically, if we can find an alfalfa that has really good color and it may be just a tad too dry to go through the press because we won't see that leaf retention once we compress it. When you flake it open, it just will be more sticks and you won't see that leaf as much. Um, that leaf is still in that bale. It just doesn't go through the compression process very well. But if we put that through the cuber or the pelleter, it's still going to have that great protein level that you're going to get from all that leaf. Same high color. It just does better through the ground processes than the compressed process. Yeah, perfect. That's a good use of the identifying the products and what work well um, in better situations for certain products. And of course, we're not ever wanting, I mean, we don't go out and be like, oh, we're going to go buy this, you know, dry hay. But we do live in Idaho. Our weather swings a little bit. We could have really dry weather for a long period of time. We could struggle to get any sort of dew on that to keep that leaf on there. So having things that might not quite be press quality for various reasons is just the reality that we live in. I mean, we're farming thousands and thousands of acres. Well, and I think it's fantastic. You take your product that we know, you know, we teach people about leaf shatter and that we don't, we don't want all the leaves just stuck in your, in your hay storage area. We want your horse to eat them. And so if we know that's going to happen, then that's not the best for a long stem hay product. But if we can take all of that great nutritional value and put it into a cuber pellet where we're not going to get that separation, then that's just really smart in my opinion. Yep. So same quality. There's just going to be a little bit of differences um, that are going to cause it to go to one process versus another. Yeah. Awesome. So what steps does Stanley have in place to continuously work to produce high quality, consistent products? 
So the first step kind of where it all starts is our training with our farm managers, um, as well as our buyers. So we have to procure a lot of forage in the growing season in Idaho. So we do have a team of our own Stanley farm managers for our operated farms. Um, and then we are purchasing some local from the growers that we have relationships with around here. So it starts with them, with the training, making sure that they know uh, what high quality product we need. Of course, our farm managers are going to be watching that quality all summer long and managing those fields based on kind of what they need. So, you know, water and herbicides and, you know, whatever the specific field is that they're dealing with. So it starts there. Um, and then we have a really good team that watches that all the way through the process. Um, so I'm on the, the front end all summer long, making sure that the hay we're putting in storage is the highest quality. Um, when it comes into our facility, we have a team um, unloading those trucks that is trained. Our two employees on that team currently have been here for 14 years each. Um, so they know the ins and outs of what we require. So they're unloading those trucks, kind of our first eyes. We do a lot of training with our plant employees as well. You know, what are our quality requirements and why? And then our shipping team, making sure that when the bag leaves the facility, it's clean and sealed and everything is appropriate for the end user. And I would add, Katie, the fact that Stanley sees the validity in having a position such as the one that Brianna fills, that right there speaks volumes to how seriously Stanley takes quality control and constantly producing a sound product for the consumers. And it certainly makes our job easier, me as the nutritionist and you in marketing, that you know we know that we can stand behind the products that I'm recommending people feed their animals, what you're marketing. So I think that the fact that Brianna is employed is a huge step towards um, the question that you asked of, you know, quality. Absolutely. I love that Brianna's here and works so hard to make sure that we're being consistent with our processes and making sure that people are trained up. I think that really does make a difference and working every day to just always be better. Yeah. And I have a little bit of a different perspective, I think, just because I am a horse owner. So in my position, I never want us to produce something I wouldn't feed myself. Right. And that's that. I mean, that is our basic. If I won't take this home to my horse, that I have loved for you know 20 years and feed it to them, I, I would not want anyone else to feed it. And so that kind of drives this as well. It's just we've got these really high quality, consistent products because there's a group of us that are feeding these products as well. So we're not producing something we wouldn't feed ourselves. Absolutely. And I love that. It just worked out so well that Stanley happened to hire somebody who has so much experience with horses, but then also growing forages and, and knowing how the plant process and all of that works. It really, it, it's a big deal. And I'm glad that you're here with us, Brianna. Well, thank you. I know that you touched on this briefly a little bit ago, but can you talk to us a little bit more about the traceability measures that we have in place if we ever needed to track back and find the source of hay? What does Stanley have in place for that? So each of our stacks um, that we are going to use has a lot number on it. Um, and that lot number lets me get back to the field that it was grown on. That lot number is going to follow every bale. So 
Let me back up a little bit. If we have a stack in the field, we're going to give it a stack number. When it comes into our manufacturing facility, it's going to come in under that stack number. And every single bale is going to get a tag on it that has that stack number. So no matter what happens, that tag is going to stay on that bale until it gets to the process it's assigned to. Once it gets to that process, um, our operators are going to record that stack number on all of their production paperwork. And so... If we ever have an issue, I can take the stack number from their production paperwork and look up and tell you exactly what field it came from. Once it gets into a bag, we are only going by the date codes that are on the back of our packages. Um, So again, that date code on the back of, you know, our pellet bag, that's going to let me get back to the date of production. And then the date of production will let me get back to the stack number used for that bag. That's great. This goes a little bit of a different route, but I don't know how many of our listeners might know that animal feed ingredients are, you know, regulated. So who regulates that for us? So animal feed is um, regulated by the FDA uh, within the Food Safety Modernization Act as far as processes, how we do our traceability sanitary measures and stuff like that. And then AFCO, which is the Association of American Feed Control Officials, they are the ones that actually decide which feed ingredients are safe to put in animal feed. So FDA is the one that will oversee our facilities. So all of our facilities are FDA registered facilities. um, And we do get audits occasionally just, you know, when they're kind of doing all of those to make sure that we're following regulations. And then prior to producing any sort of new product, we have to ensure that the ingredients that we want to put in those products are all AFCO approved ingredients. Good. Give us a little bit more insight into what AFCO actually requires on packaging or labels that is to help or benefit consumers. So AFCO is kind of the overarching association, but every state is going to have their own set of feed requirements. Most of them are going to follow the AFCO recommendations. Some of them go outside of them. It really just is state dependent. But AFCO's kind of set of guidelines tells us what needs to be on the packaging. So they want to make sure that it's species specific. You know, is this good for one species or multiple species? What stage of life is this good for? Um, It needs to be clear how many pounds are in that product. It needs to have clear feed ingredients and then the guaranteed analysis. So, you know, consumers are knowing what they're feeding, what's supposed to be in that bag, and then instructions as well of how to feed that product. Good. And all of that really is meant to help the consumer and make it easier on them when they're at the feed store looking for, you know, what to feed their animals. And so it really gives them a little bit more insight as to specifically what animals are feeding or the ingredients in it, because sometimes that makes a difference for people as well. And the nice thing is that everything's consistent in regards to, you know, kind of like the guaranteed analysis, what's required on every bag. So even if you don't have a deep knowledge of what all of those values mean, you could at least turn over two different bags and compare protein levels Mm -hmm. and know that they're being reported on the same level. Right. So I was also curious to know what type of continued education do you do to keep yourself sharp and up to speed with regulatory changes or just being proactive in general when it comes to quality? So Stanley is a part of the American Feed Industry Association. 
Um, and that has helped us immensely save to date on all of that. They have a bunch of different committees, so regulatory and um, you know manufacturing, and they're constantly sending out updates of what the rest of the industry is doing. They help a lot with you know what's happening in uh, the FISMA world, so the Food Safety Modernization Act, and if FDA is you know changing any of those requirements. So that is my main source of information um, as far as our regulatory, legislative type of changes that we see because it's an industry as a whole. Um, and then as far as, you know, more forage focused, staying up to date with our, our local hay and forage association um, is one of the, the biggest things we do. And we try to be active with them as well as the National Hay Association just to kind of keep up to date with things that are going on specifically in the hay industry. That's good. At those organization meetings, they're always really good about bringing in experts to share current research and a lot of other great educational tidbits on those processes and everything. So that's really great that you are involved with all of that. Um, And then I wanted to know if there was one thing like you had the floor here to tell our Stanley customers, what would you want them to know about what you do and why you do it? Hmm, That's a great question. Um, I would say the one thing I would want them to know um, about why I do this is just because I have a passion for feeding my horses the best. And I know that high quality forage is going to be the best for them. There's a lot to be said about all those other, there's feeds and all of that. And, you know, at different stages, those are all really necessary. But for someone like me that is feeding three retired horses, um, having the best quality long stem forage as 99% of their diet is the most important to me. And so being able to be a part of the process that can help support other people's and being able to purchase that product um, is the biggest reason I do what I do. That's awesome. And I have one more question. Yes, please. Everybody always asks you, well, what's your favorite horse? What's your favorite animal? But I want to know, what is your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop to grow is orchard grass. And why? I just love it. Just the uniqueness of how it grows during the season, the color, the seed head. Um, It has always been my favorite. Excellent. Good to know. Orchard grass really does have a pretty seed head. It does. I love, yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's so pretty. Yep. <laughs> well, I think, Brianna, I think those are all the questions that we have today. We cannot thank you enough for coming on here and giving us a little insight into what you do every day, you know, with Quality Assurance and Stanley, but then also letting us get to know you as a person and, you know, your experience and interactions with horses. This has been a fun conversation. So we appreciate you taking time out of your day to to spend it with us. Yeah, I'm thankful for the opportunity. So uh, thanks for letting me talk with you today. I will say that when Katie and I were discussing, well, I think we need to give our listeners someone else to hear other than us two (laughs) telling our stories all the time. The first person I thought of selfishly was you because you make my life so much easier. As a nutritionist, (laughs) I only have my reputation. And when I'm recommending products, I need to know that so much has gone into them to make them safe and quality and standard. And you do that. So kudos to you for making my job easier. And I would back up everything Katie said. It's great that our listeners have have heard your story and what you do on a day-to-day basis for Stanley. We have in our myth 
busters um, addressed, oh, well, you know, really good quality forage or hay is only for cows, especially with alfalfa. Um, so hopefully now people get to see that the quality assurance person behind all of these excellent forages is actually a horse person. So yep. um, don't don't be afraid to feed these hays, these great quality hays to your horses. Absolutely. So Brianna, Dr. Cubit, again, thank you both for being on today and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.